3: Hi, guys, and welcome to a new episode of You Need Therapy Podcast. My name is Kat, and I am the host here. And if you are unfamiliar with me or new to the podcast, and you are like, who are you? I am a human, and also a therapist that lives and works in Nashville who started a podcast a couple years ago to get the conversations that I was having both in my head and in my office out into the world. And I like to start each episode out reminding everybody that while I'm a therapist and while you would probably benefit from therapy because what human wouldn't, this is not therapy nor a substitute for it. However, it might guide you to start that process for yourself one day. Now, this is a very special episode. I'm very excited about this episode because today I have Shauna Nequist on the show and I was both very nervous <laughs> and very excited to get to talk with her a couple weeks ago. So I have been really excited about finally getting this episode and this conversation out to you. If you are unfamiliar with who Shauna is, she is the New York Times best-selling author of cold tangerines, bittersweet, bread and wine, savor. One that you guys definitely know, Present Over Perfect, and her new book that comes out April 12th, I guess I haven't learned that yet. And if you have not pre-ordered that book, I suggest you go do that because it is good and she is an amazing person. Shauna is married to her husband, Aaron, and they live in New York City with their two kids, Henry and Mac. And I want to say that she is a freaking delight. I don't have another word to describe her. I think that one fits pretty well. I will forever treasure my time spent with her. And I was so grateful that I got to actually talk to her. It was over Zoom, but you know what? That counts these days a lot more than it used to probably. It felt like I was really in a room with her. So I'm not going to stall anymore and like fangirl over here. I'm just going to let you guys listen to the conversation I had with her. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So here is my conversation with Shauna Nequist. Welcome. Shauna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to get to talk to you because your book, Present Over Perfect, I don't know anybody who hasn't heard of it or read it. And so I heard you had a new book coming out and I was like, oh my gosh, this is obviously going to be another great book. But I'm excited to get to talk to you to talk about that book. But also, and I don't really know why this is the one thing that really, it's like the one quote, and I don't even know if I'll quote it right, that stuck out from your book, Present Over Perfect, that hit me it was like buried in a paragraph in a sentence. You said something like, I was sick of being strung out on the drug of exhaustion. I listened to your book, which you have a what I would call a very soothing voice. Oh, so, you. you're welcome. So if anybody's like, oh, I haven't read that book yet. Listen to it because it that was really helpful for me too to hear the author speak their own words. But I paused it when you said that. And I remember being like, oh, my gosh, it like hit me in the gut. Like you saying I was tired of being strung out on exhaustion. I didn't ever think of like work as or doing things as a drug and this exhausted feeling as a drug. And I can speak for me. And I think a lot of people that I surround myself with is I almost would get like high off of telling people all the things I was doing, (laughs) which I hate. I hate saying that. I hate saying that. But I would be like, oh, I'm so busy. I have this many clients and I have to do this. and And it's like, actually, that's like annoying. That's not something that I'm like, oh, like, look at you go. And I wasn't even enjoying it. So all in that to say, I wanted to start here because that hit me so deep. I, I want to hear a little bit from you and like let the listeners know too, because I think in the world of hustle culture, which we're like still deeply embedded in, we're like trying to get out of it, but it's still all around us. And since it's so easy to get stuck in that, I want to hear from you. On like, how did you notice you were in that space? And then on the other side of it, like, how did you wake up from that like busy achievement mindset? And and how did you get to where you are now? uh, Before we get into anything else, because that was for me such an important moment.
2: Well, thank you. Like almost anything in life, there are like little whispers you should listen to them, or or then there's like the the voice level, and then there's the yelling and then there's the screaming, right? When something needs to change in your life. And I did not listen to anything except the screaming, right? I just worked and worked and worked. And I grew up, you know, in the Midwest in a very achievement oriented culture where like working hard was part of my identity. And it was such a privilege to get to do good work that I loved and publishing has its own like really weird hustle culture associated with it where like you want to be known for being someone who can deliver and who always says yes and who's always up for the next thing and so when i look back there were 1 million little whisper warning signs that i bypassed the big thing that i noticed the, the big warning flag was i stopped being able to like see and feel and taste my own life it's like i was so numb from so much exhaustion and so much output that the life I wanted so badly, it felt like I was watching it from behind a thick pane of glass. Mm. And I just thought like, this isn't, I've lost my way. I am. I'm out of alignment with my values. This is not the person I want to be. What I want is to have like a rich, juicy, lovely, connected, warm life. What I am is tired and numb. So there are no overnight, like I wish there was like an overnight solution for that. It took about 18 months of therapy and learning and relearning and making small daily changes in my schedule and talking to people in my life. That was a lot of it. You know, we talk about how we train people how we want to be treated, right? Yeah. I had told absolutely everybody in my life. I'm your girl. I'll come through. I'll never say no. I will always do the thing you want me to do. There's never too much. All of a sudden I had to have conversations with everyone from my husband to my best girlfriends, to my publisher and say like, I'm going to do things a really different way. And I'm probably going to do it badly. Like the first nine or 10 times, but I really need your help on this. And I need you to understand that it comes from some deeply held values that I've been out of alignment with. And so you're going to hear me say something I've never said before. And it's no, and it's going to be as hard for me as it is for you. And it's going to be really awkward. And I probably like the first couple of times I tried to say no, especially professionally, I think I said it so badly. They were like, I don't understand what you just said. What (laughs) actually are you saying? (laughs) They were like, I hear you saying a lot of words. Are you coming to that event? And I was like, no, I said, I said no. So clearly they were like, not clearly actually (laughs) every part of my life had to change in order to get back to those core values. But it was, one of the most worthwhile change processes I've ever been a part of in my life. And I would say, of course, there are still times when I get a little too busy or, you know, things ebb and flow a little bit, but I have not since gone back to that way of living where I am what I do. I am what I can make and the, what I'm producing mattered more than who I am on the inside. I'm a better parent than I was. Oh, yeah. a Partner than I was. And I'm really grateful to be able to have made those shifts.
3: I wonder, because I think I might be like you were in the sense that when I say no, I say no, but then I'm like, but I just want you to know that I want to be able to do this. And you know what, actually, like if maybe we can do it later. And like, I just can't just make it a sentence. I'd have to like keep going to like soften the blow. So I am curious Because saying no, I think you just have to step into this uncomfortable, like, no, embrace yourself for somebody's feelings being hurt. I'm thinking about not even professionally, I'm thinking about socially. Like if somebody asks me to hang out, I want to be the friend that's always able to do stuff. But a lot of the times at the end of the day, I want to do nothing. Mm -hmm. So then I make plans and then I'm mad that I made the plans. But I don't want to hurt my friend's feelings. So how did you like cope, like sit with the discomfort until it became like more of a normal experience?
2: I mean, it's just repetitions. It's like learning something new at the gym. It's horribly awkward at first and it gets absolutely easier over time. The other, I would say the two things that helped me were being really clear on my values and, and sometimes sharing those with people and sometimes not. But then also letting there be a loving, healthy plan B. Like for example, like right now in my life, parenting schedules are different and work schedules are different. And I have a couple friends where the time that they can hang out mostly is like pretty late night. So like they would just love to meet for a glass of wine at 10 PM. Like that's their zone. And it, cause that's when their kids are in bed. It's when they finally kind of are whatever they, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I love you so much. I can't go anywhere at 10 PM. I can't, <laughs> I can't do that but I realized that it was like causing me like a tiny little bit of stress that every time I was invited, I would say no. And I didn't want them to think like, like she doesn't want to be there or she's just like too whatever. And so I finally said like, hey, I just need to let you know. It's not like I go out with my other friends at 10 p.m. I don't go anywhere. Anywhere. This is like a no-fly zone for me. But I really care about you. And if you were ever up for like a Saturday afternoon, even if we had to schedule it out a little bit, I would love that. That'd be really fun. And so then you take it out of like the weirdness of like, why is she always saying no? I'm saying no, because I don't stay up that late. Not because I don't like you. Not because I don't think your thing is fun. Not because I'm out with other people. I would explain that thing. Like this part of my value is I have to go to bed a little bit earlier, apparently than you do. (laughs) And then here's, here's another kind of plan B. So I would say letting someone into the values that drive your no, and then having a plan B that's really loving and not just like, I can't say no. So I'm going to say no next time. Like here's an, an actual thing that would work for me. That's been really helpful for me.
4: Hey guys, Kat here. And I have something
5: Hearing you say the value part, that sticks out because
3: I'm sitting here thinking, I guess it might feel better to say no set a boundary if I know like why I'm doing it if it's because if it feels like I just don't feel like it it's no it's because I value my sleep or I value having energy in the morning for xyz it's like I'm not being mean but and for work being able to say no to certain things because I value these kinds of experiences over this that feels good so it's like I think I know what my values are but do I?
2: Yeah, well, you, you do because you're making a choice based on them, right? Yes. just Maybe have said them out loud, right? Right. So you get yeah. the end of the day and what your body and your spirit need after a full work day is downtime. You value downtime. You value, downtime. You value being able to recharge. So you, your your body and your choices are telling you, but yeah. it's helpful sometimes to quantify it with a statement even. So to say to those friends, like, Hey, I really love hanging out with you at night, but I have to tell you, when I get to the end of a workday, I've noticed that I need two or three hours of like real specific downtime. I also would say, unfortunately, in our culture, people are really cool about people who say no because of their kids or because of their partner. And they're really terrible about letting single people not show up to stuff, right? Right.
3: Yes, that is so true. It's like I totally get it if my friend who's married can't come or my friend who has kids, but I'm like, I do it to my friends even though I don't want that to be done to me. Yeah.
2: But I mean, I really so we have this, you know, group of friends that we just adore and we all live in the same kind of Little building. And one thing that we work hard on together is like one of the single men has just as much right to not show up to something as the mom of four kids, right? Mm -hmm. He could be just as busy or maxed or need a nap or want to hang out with someone else or want to do nothing. He doesn't even have to tell us. His time and his energy are worth protecting as much as a parent with a full time job. Like it just, it's important that single people get to say, I get to be the boss of my own life and choices in the same way that married people do and parents do.
3: I'm so glad you said that out loud. That reminds me of that whole idea of like my free time is not my availability. And it's it's so true. Yes. I might have more time to decide freely on my own what to do with, but it doesn't mean that I don't still get to have ownership over those decisions.
2: A hundred percent. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Okay. So I want to move into what's happening now for you because you have a new book coming out April 12th. And I want to start just with the title because if I would have known nothing and I just would have read this title, I would have been like, I would like 500 copies of this book and I would like to give it to everybody. (laughs) I think it's a good, yeah. So I want to hear like you speak about just the title of it. I guess I haven't learned that yet and where that phrase came from and then how that phrase has like been important to you? So important that you have this book written about it.
2: The phrase came about initially, our family moved from the suburbs of Chicago to Manhattan and our kids started new schools like mid-year in two different schools, two different neighborhoods, so much change for them. And every day they were coming home with all these new questions. and, And I realized that there were like specific questions, but underneath the questions, there was starting to be this kind of building up sense of like, Am I falling behind? Is there a fundamental world of knowledge that I <laughs> cannot access? Am I dumb? Am I, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, we need to take this very seriously. This isn't like, why is it so hard to find my locker? This is like, is there something wrong with me for not knowing how to do these things? And so we you know, started to have really open family conversations about it. And I wrote the phrase, I guess I haven't learned that yet and I put it on a little piece of paper and I put it in our, our little riv- living room wall. And I said, listen, here's the deal. This isn't something just you two boys are experiencing. It's something both you boys and mom and dad are experiencing. And the nature of being new, the nature of being a beginner, the nature of learning about something you haven't done before is that every single day, at least once a day, you have to say that phrase, I guess I haven't learned that yet. And you know, it's a, it's a very basic kind of version of like growth mindset, right? Instead of saying, like, I don't know, period. I guess I'll never know. There is no knowing. I will always feel in the dark about this. Yeah. I don't know now but there's every possibility that I can know this is something I can learn. And so that phrase became increasingly important to me. And then I remember I have a neighbor who's just like an extraordinary person and she's been in New York for a long time when we went out to breakfast and she's one of those people that you feel comfortable with, like in a weirdly short amount of time. So we're like at breakfast and five minutes in, I was telling her something about like our marriage about a thing I was just learning. Like, why did it take me so long to figure this out about partnership? And I said, Jennifer, I feel like every single thing in my life can be summed up in the sentence. I guess I haven't learned that yet. And she was like, there's your book title. And I was like, oh, what really? She was like, oh, a hundred percent. That's it. Yeah. Um, and she was right. It was, that was the theme of my life for these last several years. And I think probably you run into this in your work. There's something about like being a therapist where people are like, you probably know everything. As soon as you become a writer, weirdly people think you're an expert in all sorts of things, which is like massively not the case. When you're a mm-hmm. parent, people think, you know, everything. Oh, yeah. when you're, there's just all these little ways that we communicate to ourselves and each other. Like you kind of need to be the expert in this. And then I went through a season of so many changes as so many unbelongings and so many Walking away from so many things that had been foundational and certain in my life for so long, and then I like also couldn't figure out how to take the subway or get our laundry done or get our groceries home, and I started to realize that not being an expert isn't a liability; it's a real gift. It's really delightful and life giving Mm -hmm. to get to walk into a room and say, "I don't have to understand everything already." I trust that people will help me if I ask for help. And I trust that I can learn along the way the things I need to know for the next steps in my life. That brought so much peace and relief as opposed to like, oh no, what is it that I haven't figured out yet? There's time enough to figure this stuff out. Whether you're 25 or 45 or 65, that gave me so much peace. I initially was sitting
3: here thinking about when you started that is, how many times a day, whether I say it out loud or whether I say it in my head is I'm so dumb. Like I do say that. And I think sometimes I say it sarcastically, but that I think even plays a role into how I I view myself. When in reality, like if I was in New York, I would have to hire somebody to like train me how to use a subway. Like I don't know. I, I have no clue where to even start at all. So I would for sure be saying like, I'm an idiot, I can't figure this out but I even am like thinking about changing the water filter on my fridge. I didn't know how to do it until I had to learn how to do it. But I think when I initially was like, oh shoot, the alarm is going off. I think my first thing, thing was like, how dumb am I that I don't know how to change a water filter? Well, it's not that I couldn't figure it out. It's that you hadn't learned it
5: yet. Yes.
3: Literally. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, I got, that's a whole just like changing the way you speak. To yourself and the grace and what that grace offers. The other thing is, I just had a conversation with a friend today who was went to grad school with me 10 years ago. And we were talking about like what we wish we would have told ourselves back then 10 years ago. And then also like how we experience people experiencing us when they find out what we do. To the point where like when I was on dating apps, I wouldn't put my job in my profile because I'm like, well, that's either going to make people be like free therapy or they're going to be like, uh, uh-uh, I'm not going there. Right. And both ends of the spectrum are not correct. And I do think people assume that because I'm a therapist, I know everything about every mental health disorder in the whole world. And I can tell the future as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I know a lot about a specific kind of stuff. Like I work in body image and eating disorders and addiction. I know a lot about that. You bring in OCD. I don't know. I know general stuff, but I, there's a lot of I don't knows. And I think as a beginner in school, I wish I would have been able to say like, you don't have to know everything. There's no way you can. Well, yeah. And when something comes up, there's space for you to figure it out. So if I have a client who comes in with an eating disorder and anxiety and anxiety disorders go hand in hand with that, OCD stuff starts coming up. I don't know what intervention we're going to use, but I'm going to go figure it out and ask some of my colleagues and then we're going to make a plan. But I think that five years ago, I would have been like, I would have been embarrassed or like, I'm not good at my job.
2: Absolutely. I don't, don't like that. <laughs> I think you're touching on so many really important things there. And specifically that asking for help is yeah. not a failure. It's a way of respecting what you don't know and what someone else does. And, and it's a way of esteeming the work they've done, right? Like if someone, if the situation's flipped, And a fellow therapist reaches out to you and says like, hey, I know this, this and this like the back of my hand, but I actually don't know eating disorder stuff that well. I've got this particular situation. Could you walk me through a handful of these like principles or ideas? You'd be like, thank you. Thank you for tapping into my area of expertise. I think that curiosity and humility, it doesn't just enrich our own lives. It enriches the people around us because it gives them a chance to. Be experts in the things that they genuinely are experts at. That's really esteeming.
3: Yeah, I mean, using the word respect too. It's like, yeah, I do feel so grateful when people do that because I don't want people to pretend like they're experts in treating eating disorders because it is so nuanced. So yeah, I I want us to be able to do that. But I wonder, like, what is it that like the world. Majority of the world needs to learn, or as our culture, what needs to shift for like this to be like a general okay thing. Because I am agreeing with you totally. Like I want to live in this space where like it's okay to not know, and I want to live in this space where I don't have to be an expert in everything, and I want to live in a space where if I mess up, that's okay, and I want to live in that space. But I can live in that space in my bubble and the people that I surround myself with. I guess my fear is like. I feel like once I get outside of my bubble, is the world going to accept that? And what happens if somebody does tell me I'm dumb? Well,
2: I would say a couple things. I would say we have lived for a long time culturally, like the modern era as one of the markers of the modern era is certainty, right? Things are knowable and I know them and I have an answer. And we've really put a lot of stock on right thoughts and right believing. And like that hasn't gone great. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. when I get at uh, like the the level of political discourse, it's, we're not doing great. We, we told people, organize your certainties in a particular order and then affiliate with these people and then scream at everybody else from your answer position, right? Like yeah. it's not working. And so I think if those of us who feel comfortable enough and brave enough to admit that there's nuance and and uncertainty and possibility to be curious i think we're the people who can lead the way at like breaking up some of that really like brittle fragile certainty um one of the things that i love adam grant writes a lot about this and think again and on his podcast but talks a lot about the the importance of curiosity in terms of lowering people's defenses in really high pitched conversations right like yeah. There are situations where I would like to scream my certainties across the table at someone, but not if I want to change their mind. And not if I really want us to learn from each other, the way to do that is with questions, right? And with listening. And so if, if there's a group of us who are brave enough and grounded enough to be curious as opposed to certain, we can start to thaw that brittleness and that like sort of frozen stuckness. I really believe that that can change things in our culture.
3: Yeah. Cause that sounds to me very attractive. Like it sounds very attractive to be with somebody who like, that yeah, feels like, like soft and comfortable. And I want to be in a conversation with you. And I would imagine it would feel like I don't have to prove my point in that conversation because that person's trying to understand me, which I, I talk a lot about with clients is in when we have arguments, well, what if you came at the argument instead of I'm going to prove my point? Why don't you try to understand their point? And then maybe that will give them space to try to understand your point. Because I bet neither of you are fully right. Absolutely. If we can be the spearhead in a lot of those spaces, people are going to want to show up there. And the more people that are going to show up there, then that might end up being the majority. So I love that. And, and I know that you say that like curiosity and then self-compassion are like one of the greatest gifts you've been given. And that reminded me of that. So how has that been like a gift you've been given? And then like, like how did you find those things? And how have those become these very, very important things for you?
1: Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details.
2: Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. In going through a season of so many changes, like so many of us, I mean, I feel like I am very much not alone in in that the last couple of years have been really, really tumultuous for all of us in terms of a global pandemic. But I have so many friends who have moved unexpectedly or whose partnerships or marriages have ended or whose businesses have closed. We're all weathering some pretty significant losses right now. And I think Self-compassion is one of the ways that we can help return some of that softness. We can give ourselves a soft place to land. And really, as much as we want to, we can't extend a lot of goodness to people if we're not ex- extending it to our own selves. That runs through pretty thin. And so I think I realized as I was trying to help my kids through this move, I was forced to realize the way I speak to myself in my head is horrible, I would never speak that way to another living human. And if someone ever spoke that way to my children, I would just go insane. But I do it to myself all the time. And I just thought, like, we live in a difficult culture to be a woman. And it's, you know, we all have our own hangups and challenges. But I was like, listen, I like that. I'm not 12. I'm not 17. I'm 45 years old. And I still talk to my own face in the mirror. Like she's just a, a naughty, gross, terrible, like, how dare I, how have I not made more progress in this? But I hadn't. And so I thought I'm going to learn every single thing there is to learn about this. And I'm going to do like really remedial things like forgiving myself every day. And telling myself that I care about my own self every day and even saying it out loud sounds like so tacky and woo-woo and also really important. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I, I think I get that way when I tell people, like when we're talking about like affirmations, look at look at yourself in the mirror and say something kind to yourself every day. I do an eye roll in the back of my head because I'm like, oh, what is that going to, but that is the stuff that changes
2: you. It does. It absolutely does. I agree with you.
3: I'm grateful that those are really tiny, tiny things because you don't have to go out and build a big mountain to change the way that you are showing up in the world. You just have to say something nice to yourself.
2: My friend, Joanna taught me this exercise. Can I share it with you a little bit? Yes, please. please. Enormous, but she was leading a kind of a workshop kind of situation situation. And she had us all get out our phones And go to the notes page. And she said, I want you to think about someone in your life who's really struggling, but doing a really good job. Like they're carrying something heavy, but like handling it and you admire them, but you see that it's heavy, put their name, dear. So-and-so, and then write three statements. I see you. I see how brave you are. I see what you're carrying. You inspire me. You're doing an amazing thing, whatever. And then put love your own name. And then she said, okay, now go to the top, take out their name, put in your name like actually do it. She made us like delete the name and put in our name and stare at it. And you could feel the entire room like, oh man, right? And I have done that the actual thing now so many times and it's really, really meaningful.
3: I also imagine that being like the reaction from the audience being very much so like, this feels uncomfortable now. Yes,
2: but it was powerful and uncomfortable. Yes, because what it showed us is how extremely comfortable we are piling on the truth, right? Love that's true and and respect and esteem and compassion. And it's so easy to express to the people we love. You're killing it. I love you. You're amazing. You're extraordinary. That like just bubbles out of us. And then you put your own name and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't identify with this. I wonder if you do, but I don't know what it says
3: about me that I don't identify with this, but I hear all the time, like, doesn't that sound egotistical? And doesn't that sound like selfish? And doesn't that sound just icky to to be talking and, and speaking highly of yourself? And I'm like, well, maybe it does to you, but like, why? Like, why can we so be out there cheerleading everybody else on, but we have to act like we don't care about ourselves?
2: Mm-hmm. I think I, I do identify with that. I, I It does feel sort of like, oh, you think you're so fancy. Yeah. Oh, you're so great. It's so funny. My husband will catch me sometimes. Um, I'll be like trying to do like really aggressive self-compassion. And instead of saying things like, because I'm an extraordinary person, I'll say I'm like, like a solid, like five and a half on a 10 scale, just as a human, like not amazing, but like not terrible. He's like, that's not good. You're not good. at It's <laughs> not nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm like, I am uh, squarely middle of the pack on this. And yeah, I'm willing to say that about myself. And he's like, that's again, you're what? terrible at doing this.
3: Oh my God, that's amazing. Well, I also can offer an argument too. I'm not going to because I don't believe in it, but I think there is an ar- argument out there that says, going back to what you said a couple minutes ago, that we can offer compassion and love and to people. But if we're not doing it to ourselves and we're not really doing it authentically and true, I think there are a lot of people out there that don't believe that. and I think there are a lot of people out there that are like, I can hate myself and still like be supportive for other people. And I want to hear your perspective on why that isn't fully, fully real. We can't just be awful, torturous, hateful to ourselves and then
2: go out and like do the good work. I literally need to track this down. It's going to drive my husband crazy that I do this. It's either Richard Rohr or Ronald Rolheiser, who I constantly confuse. It's one of them. One of those (laughs) wonderful, amazing Catholic writers says how you do anything is how you do everything, Mm. right? The idea of like compartmentalizing and being one way in one scenario or another way in another scenario is sort of all a myth, right? The, the who we are and the what's happening inside of us bleeds out into everything. And so you can say, um, I aggressively hate myself, but I'm extremely loving to my friends. Ask them how that feels. You pick up on that with, you know, your kids pick up on it. You can feel someone who has an inner, kind of a self-hatred, you can feel that. And it feels very unsafe to be around. Let's say I'm just really
3: horrible. I have horrible body image and I'm, I'm tearing myself up about the way my body might've changed during the pandemic or something, because life changed. And that happened for a lot of people. If I'm constantly beating myself up about that, then what I see might happen is I either am no longer able to show up fully to events with my friends and to time and space with my friends because either I don't think I'm worth being there or I'm embarrassed or any of that. But also I bet you're saying stuff about yourself and your body and how your body has changed that hurts your friend's feelings. Because when somebody shows up at your house and they are like, I feel disgusting, I feel gross, I feel like everybody's gonna think that I look this and I look that. And let's say that they think you look beautiful Maybe they even think that you look better than they do and they were having a hard day It's like, oh if you think you look like that. What did you say about me when you walked in? Like that's hard
2: to sit in Yes, I think that is absolutely true and in my experience what I found is Those ways of communicating either in the positive or the negative are very contagious, right? Years and years ago, I saw a photo in a magazine and I tore it out and I put it on my wall for a while. And it was um, over the front door of a house on the inside. It said, house of love and bragging. Oh, Meaning in this house, we're going to fuss over every little thing. We're going to celebrate everything. We're going to brag about each other. And I really love that. I grew up in a little bit of an environment, not necessarily like my family home, but like the larger culture was very like, don't make a big deal about yourself. You know, you're probably just, just medium. Yes. I grew up with like really accomplished people doing really amazing things who constantly minimize their contribution. Right. Right. It's a very Midwestern thing to do. Mm -hmm. What it means then is as a little girl, if I come home or go somewhere with a, a tiny little accomplishment, well, if they're not celebrating their huge accomplishments, I'm not walking in with my spelling test or whatever, you know. but if you cultivate an environment that says, I am gonna make a wild fuss over every tiny little victory in your life, every tiny little thing that went well, every small thing that you applied yourself to and learned, That's contagious too. And you start celebrating not just your wins, but everybody's wins. It becomes an environment where you're free to be really like loose with all your bragging and praise. And I think that sounds lovely.
3: Well, yeah. And I mean, when I was talking about hustle culture, to me that helps like fight up against that is I don't have to hustle for my value and worth and to be important or I don't have to get up at three o'clock in the morning and start working to achieve this thing because I don't have to have the gold medal of the Olympics of whatever I'm doing to be valuable. I get to like, just be invited to the show to be valuable.
2: Absolutely. I feel like our our little group of friends right now, you know, it's imperfect in all the ways that groups of friends are imperfect. But one thing we really do is we really cheer each other on at like resting, getting a break, Stopping, you know, like if one if somebody's like, I'm actually going to go away for a couple of days. I just really need to like recharge. We're like, yes, get away. Send me a picture of a, an umbrella drink, you know. Yeah. We're like, hey, I'm going to stay in tonight and go to bed early. We're like, go to bed early, do it, you know. Um, Congratulations, totally. We're like, are you taking a nap? Yeah. Yes, take it out. Yeah. I love that though. That's really healing for yeah. me. Because I I just, I spent so many years in an environment. We had this moment with, I had a moment with my husband several years ago, where it was like the evening and he's like sitting down watching TV and I come sit next to him just for like one second. I'm like, Hey, don't, don't worry. I'm not, I'm not like stopping or, you know, I'm still got a ton of things to do. I just needed like my body needs, like, just like a rest for like a minute. He's like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Am I your coach and you're training for the Olympics? Like what is happening right (laughs) right now? Are you're telling me that your body wants some rest, but you're not going to get it. And you're like self-confessing to me, like you're a weirdo. And I was like, I don't know it. And he said it in such a loving way, but giving myself permission to rest has been one of the most life-changing you know, learning processes of my life. And so now to have a group of friends that aren't like, oh, really taking a nap, are we? But they're instead like, oh, naps are the best. It's so healing for me.
3: Well, and I think it's cool to hear you say that because I'm assuming that there's a fear out there that if I rest, then I won't get the thing that I want. And what I got from present over perfect is like, I was getting the things, but then like, I liked the examples that felt like I was like looking through glass. I wasn't actually experiencing them. And so I learned that it's not about the things. Maybe it's actually about the experience. And so it's it's really nice to hear you say that as somebody who doesn't just think this is a nice idea, but that knows that this is true and that you resting and actually taking a break has allowed you to actually enjoy your life and be more joyful and happy and want to be in it more than you felt when you were always achieving, always doing. I think that there's a fear that if I take a break, I guess I'll fall behind or I, I won't end up getting that thing. And it, To me, I hear you saying like, that is not true.
2: I would say to me, it's about reframing what the goal is. I'm always thinking now these days about the long game. What do I want my life to be like? I want to be a writer for the rest of my life. Um, I write more slowly than a lot of other writers. I do less travel than a lot of other writers. There's not like one big splash I want to make. I want to keep writing for a long time. And so I have to steward my life and my energy and my choices according to Again, like marathon, not a sprint. It's very easy to think about the immediate metrics in front of us, right? Like next thing, next thing, next thing. What I want is to be a lifelong writer who's lived a life that yields the kind of wisdom that's worth writing about. It's a totally different set of metrics than I want X amount of followers, X amount of visibility, X amount, you know, they're just different things. It's like eating junk food or eating healthy food. I know which one makes me feel better long-term. I mean, I still eat a lot of junk food, so that's a bad example. <laughs> but
3: that's so interesting because we, I feel like we, I don't know, I feel like we, sh- maybe it's a, we should know this. So maybe you can speak to like, I haven't learned that yet, but like, it feels like we should know that the, the followers and the, this doesn't actually in the end do the trick. It feels like I've heard that enough times or, I've seen that happen enough times It's that it's so hard to click in my head that not that I'm out here like raging for Instagram followers because that wouldn't be my my thing, but I have things. Well, maybe I'm sitting here thinking that like the fear of, of the rest might come also from if I don't do it, somebody else will.
2: Oh, like, and that's true. Yeah. Okay. Publishing present over perfect was a little bit controversial because essentially I was breaking the rules of the industry I'm a part of, Right. Publishing depends on people being willing to keep making content all the time, forever, very fast. And all of a sudden I was saying, I'm not doing that. I'm not getting on an unlimited amount of airplanes. I'm not standing on an unlimited amount of stages. I choose a different way of living. I had people very close to me say, I think the title of this book should be career suicide, right? Like They were like, if you want to blow up your career, you're doing it very effectively. I had another person say to me, oh, you're not going to show up at this event that we invited you to speak at. I'm going to find another woman and I'm going to promote her book instead. And I was like, yeah, of course you are. Yeah. But that's how it works. You know, they said, if you don't have a book out in this uh, sales cycle, someone else's book is going to sell. I was like, no, I know that's true. That's not, that's, those aren't like empty threats. There are books that are going to sell. If I don't have a book in the sales co- catalog, there are people who are, who's whatever is going to rise. If I'm not doing that thing to rise, that's okay. Because that's not the thing that I want for my life. What I want for my life is to feel present to it. And like I'm experiencing it and not exhausted and isolated and numb. And so the math gets really clear at that point.
3: Yeah. Also hearing you say that reminds me, which I believe this, but there's, there's room for like many people to be best selling authors. 100%. Right? like just like yes. there's there's room for many people to be like great therapists or if there's room for many people to have successful podcasts it's so if I take a break from putting content out yeah people are going to listen to other content but also that is where I think a lot of this comes from this like minimizing of the like ability for success whatever that might be it feels like it's like finite and there's a pie and there's only so many pieces. And once all of the pieces are gone, if you're not in the fight for the pie, then like, I guess you're out of luck, but it's
2: not. And it's the classic scarcity and abundance thing, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, So like theoretically, most people only own one car, right? So if you're selling them a car while I have this car, I'm not getting any other cars. Okay. That's real. So if you're trying to say, you know, I'm only going to have one at a time, probably books aren't like that. Albums aren't like that. Restaurants aren't like that. It's not like, well, I bought my Shana Nequist book and now I only read her books forever. Good thing I chose her, <laughs> you know, or you know what? She didn't have a book this year. So I chose so-and-so who I'm only ever going to read forever. That's just not yeah. how it works. I want to be a part of a community that where there's only more and more voices, more and more great books, but the more and more voices who have something to say because they're living lives that are deeply grounded, not just content creators who can push things out fast. I don't think we need more of that. I think we need people who are willing to put the brakes on a little bit and grow and do the hard work and then emerge on the other side with something to say. Those are the voices I'm interested in. And I want an unlimited amount of those.
3: Yeah, because what happens when if my goal is just to push out content, what happens if I run out of things to say? Do I start making things up? And I feel from the mental health side of things, this has been something that I've talked a lot about, not in this context, but I get really, really like sad and scared when I see some of the content that's out on social media right now about therapy and trauma and mental health. and Because a lot of times I'm like, that's not true. Or I'm like, that's kind of true, but the way you said that can be really misleading. Or like, That's true, but I don't think that everybody on TikTok needs to see that. I think that's information you give in a therapeutic setting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're kind of what you're speaking to, though, is like there's this push to like, I got to get content out. Well, I said these general things and now these followers want more from me. So I guess I'll go deeper into it. And that gets really, really dangerous.
2: You have to listen to your audience or your followers or your readers, but only to a point because market market demand it can never be your North star. Your yeah. North star has to be deeper than that. And it, it, you're not selling a product, you're building a voice and a, a set of wisdom. And you have to steward that in a really, not you, we, all of us, in, in really protective ways. When, when it starts, like I will start meeting the needs and answering the questions of every person who wants something from me, I think that's a really good way to lose track of what it is that drove you in the first place.
3: Yes, 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 yes. I love all of that, which I think is- Probably speaks to some of what you are going to talk about, or what you talk about in this book, because I've messed up plenty of times around like content I put out, and I think that one of the reasons that this has become so heavy is because I think I remember sitting at one point and being like, "What am I going to post today?" And I'm like, "Stop, stop doing that." Because why are you posting? You want more followers? Why do you want more followers? You have a a mental health account. Like, I, are you trying to help people, or you want to be this great Instagram therapist? I actually don't want that. I don't want to be an Instagram therapist at all. And so I can sit here feeling like all the shame in that. I can't believe I was that. Or I could say, I didn't know. I couldn't know until I knew I hadn't learned that this was a whole messy playground, that it, social media is still new.
2: Oh, absolutely. And there are events I used to speak at that I don't speak at anymore. There are um, outlets I used to write for that I don't write for anymore. Not because it's like not for any like controversial reason, just that's who I was then. And it's not who I am now. And in five years, I hope I'm doing a totally different set of things. I want to go into this
3: and I don't know that we fully have time, but I do want to ask this because that I think is really important because we can, I think, get in this like puddle of shame when we change and we look back on things that we, we used to do or we used to say, I know as I learn new things about myself and about mental health and how to treat clients all the time. And there are things that I did 10 years ago that I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that exercise. That was so not okay. That was like the gold standard back then. So I don't like sit in this puddle of shame. I'm just like, oh, I got to be more careful. But- What is it like for you and and what would you say to uh, almost like the feedback, because I I imagine you might get it at a greater scale of like, let's say you change your mind. We have permission to change our mind, change our beliefs, change our opinions all the time when we learn new information. I don't know if you've experienced this, but... I know I've seen on, in the internet, people like bashing people for like what they used to do or things they used to say, or like a text message they sent to somebody 15 years ago. How would you cope with kind of people shaming you for past versions of yourself?
2: You know, I think that's where a little bit, like when I was talking about the, the kind of that being on the, one of the people who's willing to practice curiosity. I want to be one of a group of people who accepts that the overall goal is growth And that means I'm not going to be who I was 10 years ago or 15 years ago or five years from now. And part of just like the mortifying thing of being a writer is it's like literally in black and white. Like, oh, yeah. You know, my first book, I was 29 years old. I was pregnant for the first time. I didn't have kids yet. It's an entirely different person than the one that you'll meet in this next book, but it's funny because people don't always do that math. I'll meet people and they'll be like, "Hey, I just read your book, and it's so fun because I'm pregnant for the same time too, for the first time too." And I'm like, "Oh, oh, oh, oh yeah, that was definitely sixteen years ago." Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a like a little time capsule, and I just yeah. have to be just aggressively gracious with that girl who was twenty nine years old, and I said everything I knew at the time, right? And then three years later, I said a totally different set of things because I had walked through a wholly totally different segment of life. And I hope to write books forever. And I hope that along the way that what I've always said is my contract with my readers is with every book, I promise to become a better human and a better writer. I don't promise that I'm going to be consistent in all my beliefs all the way through. I don't promise that I'm not going to get things really, really wrong and then have to make them right. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get things wrong and I'm going to make them right. But the only thing I can promise is I will become a better human and a better writer along the way. And reading them all in order is probably going to be like kind of a mess because I was growing up
3: like we all are yeah and i'm thinking about how like in school when you are getting your textbooks it's like buy this book this edition because every so often they're updating them because we're doing more research we're learning more stuff those people get to go update their books and we get an updated version you don't get to do that right and we have to remember that there's some another author i don't know who it was but i i was reading a book Oh man, this is going to bother me. Like you can't remember who said that quote, mm-hmm. but I was reading it and they were talking just about that thing of like, oh my gosh, it's almost like it can be mortifying to go back and read the stuff that people are finding now being like, oh my gosh. And they're like, I don't believe that anymore. Yes. But yeah, you don't get to do a revised version of your stuff. It's just out there. And I think Honestly, to me, that's very, like, admirable that, I mean, I'm not going to go back and edit these podcasts in 15 years. Right. And I I mean, this is a true version of me. And that was a true version of you. It was
2: absolutely honest for that moment. And it was the best I could do in those seasons.
3: Yeah. Totally. Okay. Well... I could sit here for about another three hours, (laughs) Um, but we're not going to do that. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I fully enjoyed this. This is
2: wonderful. Thank
3: you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this. And where is the best place for people to get your book? Like, where where do you want to send them? So
2: the book, you can get it everywhere. You can get it online. You can get it at big stores, little stores, local stores. There's an audio version, um, and they will all be available on April 12th.
3: Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And it's Friday. So I hope you have a nice weekend. It's freezing where I am. So I hope you have better
2: weather than me, but. well, thank you. It's, it's probably the same weather here, but we think it's really warm. (laughs) So, (laughs) (laughs) okay. Well, I hope
3: that you enjoy your warm weather then. All right. Thank you so much. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.
5: It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash Healthier Happens Together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.
4: This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen.